Advisors, a podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we're discussing a topic many advisors have mixed emotions about, compliance. Many advisors, and certainly marketers at advisory firms, have a love-hate relationship with compliance, seen as an obstacle, a necessary evil, but something to be relied on in case of a complaint by a client. For a professional perspective on this often misunderstood aspect of advisory, we're speaking with Chris Wynn, partner at Advisor Assist, a compliance consultant and service firm based in Boston. Chris founded Advisor Assist in 2006 and has over 23 years of investment management industry experience with a focus on regulatory compliance, business transitions, and operations and technology matters. Prior to founding Advisor Assist, Chris was a co-founder and managing principal of Mainstay Consulting Group, a strategy and compliance consulting firm serving investment advisors, sold Mainstay in 2009. Before founding Mainstay, Chris was the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Compliance Officer for Open Investing, the division of Navigant. There, he led a regulatory compliance teams in assessing the effectiveness of the design and implementation of compliance programs. Chris started his career focusing on operational and regulatory challenges for investment advisors, investment companies, and their service providers. Chris, welcome to the program. We're glad you could join us today. Oh, thank you for having me. We've had you on the show before, and you explained to our audience how the best strategy to make compliance less of a challenge is to build it into your regular routine business practices, which sounds like a terrific idea to me. It integrates your compliance review process with the rest of the business calendar, make sure everything's covered and without creating parallel systems. All that being said, the main goal is really to be properly prepared for an audit, either from SEC or from FINRA, depending on your registration level. Let's talk about how those audits for a moment. How are they arranged and how do you know when your number's up? Sure. Well, you know, the audits will vary greatly depending on whether you are registered with one or many of the various state regulators, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, and or FINRA. Um, But let's focus on the initially on the SEC registrants. Uh, The SEC takes uh, an examination approach that is a combination of uh, routine exams, uh, new entrant examinations, and then targeted or what they call sweep exams. So starting with the new entrant exams, they learned a number of years ago that as the, the, the denominator, uh, you know, the number of registered investment advisors was continuing to increase rapidly, they used to quote in percentages and go out and, and have a single exam protocol or mostly a single exam protocol where they would show up at someone's office, you know, with, with little notice, uh, some, usually some, but little notice and park themselves there. And they recognize that uh, as a percentage of registered investment advisors, their optics were not looking very good. So they, the, the number of the percentage number of firms they were getting to kept going down and down and down where they were in technically, technically speaking, the number of exams they were actually conducting were going up. So what they did is to address this, this challenge is, is, is taking this multifaceted approach. First new registrants, new sec advisors, Generally, within the first year, the SEC does a what a remote books and records exam, which includes a document request you know, over a span of a, a week or so, followed by a telephonic interview to essentially size up the advisor to understand who they are, how they came to be a registered advi- investment advisor, you know their background and history, how prepared are they to run and operate a registered investment advisor including their compliance program, and validating that they have the core infrastructure in place to meet the compliance challenges. 
So that's the, you know, kind of the new entrant approach that may or may not result in them actually coming in to do a formal exam, onsite exam, which, or, you know, pre-COVID an onsite exam, or in the midst of COVID here, an expanded remote exam. Once a firm is established, there's generally two approaches that the SEC takes, assuming that they're not coming for cause. Um, so if someone's coming for cause, you know, all trends and norms are, are out the window, right? They they show up and they they bring enforcement individuals as opposed to examination individuals there. But with a routine exam, uh, you know, the, the first exam that they do, this new entrant exam, does actually help them size up the advisor and determine, you know, how quickly they're going to get back. They don't share any, um, any of their uh, methodology um, or their algorithm for figuring out, you know, who gets examined and when. Um, but the things that we do know is that conflicts of interest and additional items of perceived risk, which could be identified from the ADV, increase the risk profile. So stated another way, you know, two firms of, of equal size and geography, one, one having no conflicts of interest, like no other lines of business, and a simple, plain, vanilla uh, service model may not get the exam as quick as someone who has custody over client accounts, runs a private fund, has uh, folks that are hybrid advisors, insurance licensing and other potential items that the regulators view as, you know, a potential for conflict or risk. Now that makes perfect sense to me because the more complex the situation, the more likely there is to be something to find. It sort of makes sense that they're going to put those people on a high priority and folks that know that they've got a complex business model are, are going to be aware of that. It's really not an unknown or it's not an ambush. You have some notice and some time to prepare and review, which seems very fair. One other really quick thing to note is that many of the examiners are also accountants. Um, so if you think of the you know uh, audit protocols and exam risks, they you know one of the key things they always ask for are financials. So you know the the simple you know follow the money approach isn't just what they do on TV, right? So there's so it uh, you know how you get paid and who you pay to operate your business is telling to the regulators with the simple premise of you know those on uh, you know th- those unstable financial footing are more likely to make better decisions than someone who is is on uh, shaky ground. Certainly, if things are a little more precarious, the, the the chance and the opportunity to cut corners certainly present themselves more often, and they would find those. Now, uh, the SEC has released overarching focus guidance that suggests that RIAs are going to continue to be a focal point for audits going forward, just because there are more of them. Uh, what specific elements or areas are federal regulators going to be looking at more closely in the coming years? Well, each year, um, the the SEC uh, shares their regulatory priorities. Uh, in, in recent years, they've tried to make it not be a mystery of what they view as important. Um, and we're, we're awaiting, you know, their, their details for this year. But the, uh, you know, the core things that have been focus, in focus include anywhere where there's a conflict of interest between the the firm and the client, cybersecurity, and as you can imagine for 2020, business continuity circled back around to be one of the, you know, the top things on uh, on their radar screen. And we suspect that, as I mentioned, the three types of examinations where they do, 
you know, new entrant uh, sweep and then, uh, you know, new entrant regular exams and sweep exams. Uh, we expect that they're likely going to do some sweep exams on business continuity and privacy and other aspects of, of all of us just being at home or somewhere, but just not at the office. So, uh, you know, did we follow all these protocols and policies and procedures and things that we've committed to in writing? You know, did we protect client personal information? Did we cut any corners because it was just inconvenient and we were at home instead of sitting at our desk? You know, those are the things that they're likely to dig into in the year to come. We're going to talk about those cyber issues in just a little bit in more detail. Uh, remind me to bring that back up. Even things like your corporate structure, though, can affect what auditors are looking at or how often they look at it. Sometimes partnerships are viewed differently, sole proprietorships, that sort of thing, even at the basics, even after your initial first year exam can raise problems, can't it? Absolutely. You know, one of the things the regulators do look at, and it's why there's very clear instructions on ADV1, is that they want to know all of the people that own and operate a registered investment advisor. So there's Schedule A and Schedule B of ADV Part 1, which require, you know, listing anyone of, and then Item 10 as well of the ADV, that uh, requires listing of people of various levels of ownership, indirect in tracking indirect ownership back to natural persons and natural persons of certain levels of ownership, as well as any rules of control. So essentially what they're trying to avoid is that you have uh, a holding company that has a holding company that has a holding company that owns an RIA and no one actually knows who's, who's running and operating the RIA. (laughs) And, you know, and there's, there's legitimate reasons for, for having the holding companies. One most important is in, not every firm is, is, is closely held. So as investors, uh, as firms may have investors, you know, think of this as, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith as a uh, non-contributing member to the operations of an advisor may not be eager to have their name out there on regulatory filings as the owner of an RIA in which they have no control. Uh, so there, there are conduits or reasons why having that structure makes sense, but the, the regulators created those, uh, you know, those safeguards to make sure, you know, essentially what they're obviously, the, the core thing they're looking for is to make sure that there aren't any bad actors that somehow control an RIA, but just due to having uh, had issues in the past are no longer, you know, required to put their name on it. So they're really seeking control and transparency as much as anything. They just want to find out what's going on more readily. Absolutely. Now let's get back to that cybersecurity issue for a minute. I know that's an expanding area of concern with a lot of support staff working from home. How can our listeners, who are usually smaller RIAs, improve those systems to be compliant? And what's on the horizon for new regulation regarding all this? So the, 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 there's a bunch of ways that they're getting at cyber. So there's numerous rules, starting with an advisor's fiduciary duty. Section 206 of the Advisors Act defines the fiduciary duty and responsibility that you have to a client. And then uh, subsection, um, you know, Rule 20647 of the Advisors Act, is, which is also termed the CCO rule, basically states that, you know, a firm is required to have a chief compliance officer and a compliance program that's effective in preventing, detecting, and correcting any errors, including errors of federal and state securities laws. So they circle back. It's, it's kind of a catch-all way of saying, well, we all agree that you're a fiduciary, right? 
okay, now that we've established that you're a fiduciary and you're required to have a compliance program, wouldn't it be reasonable for a fiduciary to have a compliance program that protects against cyber threats and other, and other, uh, you know, other aspects as a fiduciary? And oh, by the way, you know, since you have a CCO who's responsible for making sure this compliance program is effective and accurate, wouldn't it be reasonable that you have a documented policy so it can be tested to verify that, in fact, you do have the controls that you talk about? So while they haven't list, while they haven't uh, released, you know, the cybersecurity rule like they have a books and records rule or an advertising rule. They they basically have circled it in every aspect of of responsibility of an advisor to ensure the protection of personal information, the protection of data and system resources, and of course the ultimate protection of client assets. So they've really bundled a lot of the protections into the fiduciary aspect of all this because you have to work for your client's benefit, and one of those benefits is protecting their identity and protecting their records. I think that's very reasonable. Um, besides with technology changing as fast as it is and federal regulations moving as slowly as they do, they're never going to be at the cutting edge of describing specific technologies to engage in or not engage in with a rule. I, I think that's a pipe dream to have them asked to be able to do that. But broad sweeping regulation that says you should protect certainly makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge with listing specific technologies or workflows and other approaches is that they become immediately outdated. Sure. And they and, and that's that's really one of the key differences between the the FINRA regulations and the uh, Advisors Act and incomparable state rules. So on the RIA side of the world, a lot of the rules and regulations are are based in the core principle that's there. So here's the expected outcome and here are some of the things that we expect for you along the journey of achieving and proving that outcome, um, which, you know, as an example, you know, uh, the, the types of systems or the criteria of systems for maintaining books and records as a, as a really good example. But the SEC doesn't, um, you know, state a system, for instance, of how, of how you maintain books and records. They simply state, you know, it's your responsibility to keep true and accurate books and records safe from alteration or uh, an, an inadvertent or, or intentional misuse for a period of at least five full years from the end of the year last used in the business. So they don't say, you know, you're, you must use this system or this type of system. They basically state the outcome and, uh, and, and what you're responsible for and what you're going to be measured against when they come do an exam. Right. So to me, that makes perfect sense. I don't think anybody could really argue with the fact that they're not going to get pushed into a corner in terms of recommending a way to do things. They're just looking for a specific outcome. Yeah. And I think in the long run, it actually helps the, it's a much, uh, it's a much easier system to be compliant with for those firms that, as I mentioned at the beginning, that kind of bake the, you know, kind of the operations and into their their compliance into the operations is a better way of saying it. So integrating and having a process for all of your core workflows and flows of information to think through, you know, what do we say? What do we not say? How and where do we keep things? How do we measure ourselves to make sure we're doing everything we need to? And how do we prove that we're doing a good job? So when you think of that and align it to a principles-based set of rules, that becomes, you know, naturally adaptable because as you're 
technologies get better, as your processes get more refined, the, the expectation is your policies move with it uh, and don't stay stagnant. Perfect. That sounds like tremendous advice for our audience. We're going to take a break for about a minute and a half. When we come back, we're going to be talking about ADVs and CRSs and a whole alphabet soup of things, plus the testimonial rule. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, but feel like you could use some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsourced options and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. For more information or to set up an appointment, call 201-919-4838. And we're back with Chris Wynn of Advisor Assist. Let's talk for a minute about something that was new last year that may be causing some concern for our audience. Talking about the ADV3, the notorious CRS form. Are those being utilized and built correctly by advisors? And if so, are they really helping the general public select an advisor? Sure. So ADV, ADV3, you know, also known as Form CRS, the Client Relationship Summary, was a way of the regulators, uh, you know, bridging this uh, this gap that they couldn't get through to uh, to take uh, you know salespersons and fiduciaries and align them together. Uh, you know, so it's, 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 it's a step one towards some harmonization there. The, the challenge is, um, is that it's duplicative. Uh, so it's a three page summary of, of your business practices where it's intended to be, you know, delivered to the client as a quick summary of how do you do business and what are the major conflicts of interest, if any, that, uh, an advisor should uh, should disclose, and if anyone in the advisor has ever had a disciplinary history, to get them to go to investor.gov to check it out. Um, so, uh, I guess, in my opinion, while well intentioned, um, you know, we view that this is just you know one other thing in a in a sea of disclosure that uh, is very unlikely to be read by the end investor. So, the impact level. I'd put at a one, the effort level to get it out is like a seven. <laughs> so you look at the ROI on these things and sometimes advisors scratch their head and say, geez, why are we having to deal with this? Uh, I mean, the good news is that it's not all that onerous. Um, if a firm has a website, they're required to have it published on their website. It needs to be accurate and maintained on, AD, on the ADV filings uh, inside as part of the ADV1 filing, even though it's a technical separate filing. And the, I, I guess the biggest thing is um, the biggest nuisance that this has brought is it, it brings to light the, the flaw in the CRD reporting system that the central registration database of FINRA, where, whereby an advisory person or a registered rep, it's the same system regardless of whether you're registered under an RIA or registered under a broker dealer, um, but it's the background of an individual, and it's it, that process has long since been under scrutiny and and flawed. So if a client makes a complaint against a firm, 
the complaint goes out there and now you have a you have something on your your firm record now just because someone makes a complaint doesn't make it true now i i would on the flip side of that say i've read you know hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of these and i'm sure that there's probably a fair amount of truth to many of them that that are out there at least the the interpretation but the challenge with that system is that if there's anything there you 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 can't describe it so you know there's a question on the crs that basically says you know do, do any of your people have any have any marks on their regulatory record? Yes or no? And you can't. It's just a yes or no question. <laughs> so you have a firm that you know, regardless of the size, that has to answer that. So and it, it's really, you know, it's somewhat it's somewhat unfair. I guess if you're the if you're the firm that has uh, a perfectly clean record and no one has anything on theirs, so it's perf- it's great for you. If someone, you know, uh, was, uh, you know, just happened to be working at a firm in the middle of the 2008 market crisis and the firm happened to offer an adjustable rate fund and you have nothing to do with it, but you happen to be the one that was advising the client and you're, you're carrying this uh, negative thing around for the rest of your life, you look at those things and say, well, those are unfair. Now, there's certainly resources out there to get those things that are truly unfair to be expunged. But that, of course, costs money. So to answer the question, the form CRS, um, you know, it uh, the impact of it is hard to measure because, you know, you don't really get end feedback loop of an end client to say, was this document helpful to us in any way? And arguably, we think, you know, all of the information was already in in the ADV. So they should have just required, uh, you know, the first page to be the first three pages to be a summary of everything else that's already in the ADV and have one less thing to deliver. So now advisors are running around uh, guilty until proven innocent on their own dime. And you can't differentiate between a simple complaint that my billing notice was late over they took $3 million from me and misappropriated it. Uh, that seems to very scary to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I honestly, I don't think it was the, the, the intent when they first started working on it. Um, but you know how these things get, uh, you know, get pushed through, and how there's more politics in it than, than, than investor protection at at times. So, you know, that's that's kind of where we ended up. And given the fact that the impact on the end client is probably negligible, are there ways you can make that form more effective? Should our advisors be looking at the profile? Should they hire a consultant, somebody to help them with the language? Eventually, these things are going to rise to the top, and somebody's going to say, "Gee, this is a nice document. Why, why haven't we worked on this more? What, what should a small advisor do?" Yeah, I mean, th- this is a, a, a simple place where there's differentiate. There's really no differentiation between small and large. So, a, a smaller firm competing with a larger firm, it's it's there's no how big are you, how many people are you. It's it's literally you know who are you, what do you do. And, you know, disclose any conflicts or any issues. So arguably a smaller firm, you know, certain smaller firms may have fewer conflicts or other things that they need to put in there. And it can be a very concise document and they request a logo if you have one. So it can be polished up as a nice piece to just say, look, we are fiduciaries. This is what we do. This is how we do it. And uh, for more information on us, go look here, but um, or go to our website. So go to the investor.gov or go to our website. So it does. It, there is a leveling of the playing field with this particular document itself. 
So you can take best advantage of it with a little creativity and an eye towards what people really are looking for. Yes, yeah, with with with, with some limitations. I mean, they were in this particular document they were much more prescriptive as to the formatting than they have been in documents in the past. Yes. It uh but really the you know the key thing is just that what you can't delete from the document and when you can and cannot expand on something. Right. They were very specific about how many how many blocks of text and where they went and what they talked about. I think the the intent was if I read between the lines carefully, they were trying to instigate what seemed like a conversation, like you were asking a question and getting an answer back from the advisor, which is laudable. But I don't think with the limitations they put on it, it really comes across that way. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, they 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 were on the right track many many years ago. I think it was 2010 that they eliminated the schedule, the ADV two and schedule F. And um, you know, for us uh, older folks here that that remember these, they were actually were always on the right track. You had the requirement in the left column, and you expanded in text in the right column. And the document would just flow as long as it needed to uh, to answer all of the different questions. So you had uh, you had a lot of standardization there. They went then went to the plain English ADV in the same manner that the they pushed on the the plain English um, you know prospectus and, and and other documents on the mutual fund side of things. And what one of the you know the common practices out there is to is to basically you know just hide a disclosure right in the middle of the disclosures, right? So if there's something that you don't want someone to see, well, you don't have to worry about not disclosing it. Just go write a whole bunch of other words around it or paragraph placement or, or things of that nature and, and, and focus on the principles of human nature. You know, people tend to read in like an F, F-shaped format, you know, left to right to left across the top, straight down the left, and they don't read anything on the right. So if you want a bad word, you know, middle of a paragraph, bottom right, no one's going to read it. <laughs> Social engineering in the disclosure world. Unbelievable. We're not just compliance consultants. No, and, and no, in all, in all seriousness, it, you know, they, they had something that, wa- that needed tweaking, but they threw it out and started over and, uh, and created yet, you know, yet another document that was so voluminous that very few, very few people, you know, we believe very few investors truly read an ADV, you, you know, so, um, you know, obviously the regulators do and the advisors, uh, you know, have to make sure that the, you know, the two and 10 of two out of each 10, uh, 10 of their clients that read it, read it and it matches up to their story, their, what they've told them, what they're going to deliver and that everything's accurate and so forth. So it's something that must be, you know, complete and accurate and aligned with the firm and with its websites and spoken words and, and things of that nature. But, it, it, you know, this is kind of one of those things that's, that's got off, gone off track, uh, you know, way many, many years ago. Well, let's shift gears for a second and talk about something new that may or may not go off the rails. Uh, there's one newsworthy development on the compliance front, uh, the new updated testimonial rules. Tell me all about what those exactly are and, and how does that help advisors? Yes. Yeah, so for the longest time, this was uh, a thorn in the side of advisors being one of the you know, few economic sectors where no one could tell anybody about their experience with the firm or the individual. So it was prohibited to, for anyone to give a direct or indirect testimonial or any indication of their experience with an advisor. 
And uh, for years, the the SEC had indicated that it was something that was under evaluation. Uh, and I think that the challenge that they finally overcame was that they were focused so much on the delivery mechanism and not at the actual principle itself. And so what they did in connection with allowing testimonials was harmonization of advertising communication standards, taking the way you communicate out of the rule set and basically bring it back to its principles. So a, an advertisement or communication needs to be truthful, it needs to be accurate, and it cannot omit any material facts. And by taking, you know, having not no longer having different rules for blogging versus social media versus print versus email versus website, that allowed them to uh, to to basically accomplish both goals with one, you know, one one major change to the to the Advisors Act. Wow, now that's that's efficiency and governance. I love that. <laughs> Kill two birds with one stone, and I can't believe it's going to work. But we'll see. Well, if you- if you, if you call 30 years of working on it efficiency, I guess I'd be able to. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they did finally get there. And uh, yeah, it's it's been something that's been discussed my entire career. And, you know, it's, uh, if I had a dollar for every time I was asked the question, I wouldn't be here doing a, a you know, a podcast with you. So, uh, you know, it, it, it just goes to show, you know, the it, it took time. It took a lot of time, but we're finally here. And, uh, you know, more to come on the refinements of how this actually plays out. But uh, the the most important thing is, uh, you know, firms, you know, now have the ability, it it helps with referrals, um, it, you know, organically through clients, it helps with solicitor relationships, in that, you know, one can, you know, can be out there, you know, a client and also a referral source, so a paid solicitor, uh, as well as a client. Although that still requires, you know, um, you know, disclosure if there's, you know, of the potential conflict, uh, but there's there's many, uh, you know, many positives to this uh, for the advisor that they've been, you know, waiting for for quite some time. Sure. Now, think about how this might be implemented by advisors. How do you think that's going to play out over time? Is that going to give our early adopters an edge in finding new clients, or does it open the door to? bad actors who go beyond the scope early before there's any precedent cases set? Well, you know, it's uh, clearly both, <laughs> right? You know, it's uh, the, uh, the, the, the bad actors always have a, uh, always have a leg up here, um, you know, in terms of these things. Uh, you know, I guess the best way of looking at it is uh, the, it really puts the advisor in more of a position of strength to do marketing and there's a number of factors all at play, you know, now having the harmonization of the rules, I think you'll see more advisors start to use social media and other methods for um, client attraction and to display their, their capabilities. I think you couple that with, with what we learned in, in, the, in the trailing, you know, 12 months here that, uh, you know, the world doesn't necessarily need to be sitting at a desk across from a big mahogany conference table or, you know, uh, you know, in a, in a formalized office suite in order to be effective. So you bring these pieces together and I think you'll start to see, I think what we're going to see is advisors that are actually out there marketing and not just be, and not just awaiting referrals. Uh, I, I don't think the, the, I don't think the, you know, the close, network of referrals will go away, but I think you will start to see more advisors marketing 
and uh, in working with clients that are outside their footprint. That that's an interesting point because realistically, we've just taken away all the geographic boundaries of where you can serve clients. Your the the nation is now your footprint, if you look at it that way, because everybody's getting virtual meetings. So it doesn't matter whether you're at a virtual meeting in California or Hawaii or anywhere else, you're getting the same service everybody else is at this point, which means you're going to have to market in a very different way than you are just waiting for the guy down the road to talk to his buddy over coffee and say, hey, come see me. Um, that's a very different scenario. And, and advisors would be wise to get hip to the ways of marketing if they're going to be competitive in the future. Without a doubt. And, and that's, you know, by and large, a weakness of our industry is that we're, we're, we're not the best marketers in the financial sector uh, here. And in, in most of it was, you know, the dynamics is, that were out there, the rules and just the nature of how business came our way. But I, I think this is all poised to change a bit with, the, with the, the shift in rules. Certainly seems like a step in the right direction. Those are terrific insights, Chris. I'm sure our audience is just fascinated with all of this. We have time for one more question. If you had to sum up, what should small advisors be focusing on right now when it comes to compliance? What's the one thing they can take away and go back to the office or back to their screen and say, this is what we're going to do? Well, you know, we, we, we try to encourage advisors of all size to, uh, to have compliance be a continuous rotational thing that you do. And uh, so instead of testing and dealing with compliance once a year, you know, continue to, to work and chip away at it. So I guess the first thing I would say is just, you know, get started. The, you know, some firms, you know, look at the things that they didn't do and, you, and that's a barrier for them to jumping in and getting started on their testing for, for the new year. Uh, this is the time of year that most firms, those with the 1231 fiscal year end are in the middle of uh, updating their ADV. So they have their annual amendment requirement. And if you think about the ADV as the nucleus of all the things that they need to do from an advisory standpoint, you know, that, that their business does from an advisory standpoint, uh, a thorough review of that ADV and how it correlates to all your other business practices, this is the perfect time. So it's not just about making sure your assets, clients, and accounts are accurate in a regulatory document. As I said earlier, you know, does your ADV actually tell your story for the two of 10 people that will actually read it? Um, but, you know, does your, are your fee practices, are they actually consistent and precise to, precise to how you actually do things now? Did anything change over time? So there's a, there's a lot that you can, uh, that you can do just by d diving into the ADV and that will take you in different directions to update and improve the overall business practices of the firm. Uh, so that's, that, that would be one place that I would encourage everyone to, to look. Second, cyber is really, you know, it is one of our biggest risks. And, you know, while many of us were in a contingency situation, working remote, working from home, uh, you know, did you get a, a technology and cyber checkup? You know, so is the advisor operating their business on the same network that their, their kids are playing Xbox on um, and, you know, potentially vulnerable for all those various risks? Is paperwork actually a books and records actually making it to the right, you know, folders, repositories, whether physical, electronic? So I, I would evaluate the remote working. Um, you know, it's we prove that we can do it. Now we need to just prove that we can do it in the right way without losing control. <laughs> That's perfect. What a great summation, Chris. Those are incredibly helpful tips. 
Thank you very much for joining us with your insights today. We've been speaking with Chris Wynn of Advisor Assist, a compliance outsource firm about what advisors can expect from federal regulators and others in terms of compliance in the coming year. If you have questions about compliance or about anything else involving your advisory practice, please be sure to drop us a line at advisors at pinnacleadvisory.com. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and you've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such.